Right, well this week, uh, as we keep going in Matthew, we move to, I suppose, the next phase, the next stage in Jesus' ministry. Uh, and it's the next phase because it's, it's Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. Uh, this starts what we sometimes call the Passion Week. Uh, this is that last week that Jesus lives before he dies on the cross. Uh, and he starts this week in a pretty big way, doesn't he? With a triumphal entry, as we saw in that great cartoon. Uh, his arrival is marked with a huge crowd uh, shouting to the son of David. Uh, and it's an event uh, that's pretty well known, isn't it? Most of us have heard of this Palm Sunday, this Sunday before Easter. Uh, and I don't know about you, uh, but for me, as I think of that event... Uh, the thing that comes to mind, uh, the, the kind of dominant thing that I think about is humility. Uh, the humility of a king who rides into town, not on a war horse, uh, not in a, a big chariot, not in some great procession, but humbly sitting on a donkey. Uh, a sign of the type of king that he's going to be. The kind of king who will willingly lay down his life for his people. Uh, But as I studied this passage, uh, as I wrapped my head around it, uh, I realised that there's more to this story. That's there, that's true, uh, and it's really important for us to understand. Uh, But there's something more going on, something that I've never really focused much on before. See, when you dig a little bit closer, when you you look a bit more carefully, uh, you notice that this is a, a big part of Jesus making a statement. Uh, This is a loud and clear public statement about who Jesus is. Uh, And he wants to declare it. He wants people to know. Um, Now, some of you know that Curse, my wife, is a teacher. Uh, If you don't, she's a teacher. Uh, In fact, she's a high school teacher, which is probably the scariest kind of teacher, I think, uh, from an outsider's perspective. Uh, and if you know Kirst, you'll know that she's someone who, who is fairly young-looking. I'm not just saying that because she's my wife, but she's young-looking. Uh, she's quite short. Uh, and so being a high school teacher who's young and short comes with some challenges. Uh, now, Kirst had an incident not so long ago. She was taking one of her classes on an excursion, some sort of conference, I think. Uh, and so she, with the students, arrived... Uh, and they went to talk to the organisers, find out where they were supposed to be. Uh, and so as she went up to the organiser, the organiser looked at her uh, amongst her students and said, where's the teacher? <laughs> uh, so these are the challenges that comes with looking like cursed and being a teacher. Uh, and it's a challenge that means it's really important for her to assert her authority. And particularly, that comes into play on the first day of the teaching year, the day uh, when a new class comes in, a class who doesn't yet know her, who might be tempted to think they can get away with a bit extra because of this young teacher. Uh, On that day is the day that curse lays the smackdown. She makes sure they know exactly who it is that has authority in that classroom. On that first day of the year, let me assure you that you do not want to mess with Mrs Warner. Uh, She makes sure there's no mistaking exactly who she is uh, and make sure that the students know that they need to respond appropriately. Well, here in Matthew, in this passage that we're looking at today, uh, Jesus is doing 
a somewhat similar thing. Uh, See, in this entrance to Jerusalem, Jesus is making sure that we know exactly who he is. Uh, And he wants to make sure that we respond appropriately. He shows us that need. Uh, And so as we make our way through Matthew 21... Uh, That's what we're going to see. We're first going to see exactly who it is that Jesus proclaims to be. Uh, And then we'll see how people, and in particular the Jewish leaders, respond to that claim. Uh, And then lastly, we'll see where those responses lead us. Uh, And to do that, uh, it's a big chapter. We're going to jump around a little bit. I'm going to try and uh, pick up some of the big themes that are there. So don't be too alarmed if we move to odd spots in the passage. Uh, Because I'm going to try and hone in on that that big picture of what's going on. Uh, As we do that, as we make our way through all of it, uh, like it often is, I think, uh, it's tempting to assume that we're okay. Uh, As we see the typical bad guys, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees, uh, it's easy for us to, to get into the mindset, well, that's not me. There's no danger here. I'm okay. Uh, And sadly, that's exactly what the Pharisees think of themselves, isn't it? That that they're okay, they're fine, they don't really need to think about it. Uh, And so I want to challenge us all, myself included, uh, to keep your ears open. Be ready to see where we might be missing the mark, where we might be missing some truth that Jesus wants us to know. Uh, Let's begin uh, looking through all this by looking at this proclamation that Jesus is making, that first point. Uh, And so let's look at the first few verses that come. So we're going to look at Matthew 21, 1 to 5. As always, uh, I'll have the verses up on the screen. It's great to have your Bible open as well so you can see where it fits into the passage. Uh, But Matthew 21, 1 to 5 reads, As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to, your, say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And now that quote that we see there, it's uh, bolded and in italics, comes from the book of Zechariah in the Old Testament. And it clearly points forward from that time uh, to a coming king, a Messiah figure. And this is Jesus making a really deliberate statement about who he is. Uh, He's he's not looking for anything cryptic here. This shouldn't be confusing. Uh, He's stating uh, that he is this Messiah figure. That uh, statement wouldn't be lost on the people. Uh, And we see that, don't we? They respond in kind. Uh, They threw their cloaks on the road, spread out palm branches, this uh, figure of national identity, uh, shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, In other words, Hosanna to the promised king. Uh, This is an appropriately royal welcome in response to Jesus' loud and clear claim to be the promised Messiah, the one who would save them. Uh, The crowd chants Hosanna, you might have noticed that. Uh, That word Hosanna literally means save now. Uh, And so it's good to keep in mind that this was a huge crowd chanting save now. Uh, It was the time of year that the Jews converged on Jerusalem 
uh, for the Passover festival. Uh, And so this city, Jerusalem, normally a population of about 70,000, would have swollen to about a quarter of a million, 250,000 at this time during this festival. Uh, And so there was this... You can, you can imagine it, can't you? This wave of excitement spreading through the people. The prospect that the Messiah had finally come. The promised king had arrived. And so this city was literally buzzing with excitement about Jesus. Um, now, having said that Jesus is making a clear statement about who he is, um, it's good for us to notice that, that that doesn't mean that everyone actually understands the nature of what the Messiah would be. Uh, For many of them, uh, they don't think that the promised king would be anything like Jesus. Uh, They recognise his claim to be Messiah. They celebrate uh, that he's come. But we'll see that for many, many of them, in just a few short days' time, they'll be the ones chanting, crucify him. Uh, Because he doesn't line up with the type of Messiah that they had hoped for. Uh, They want someone who would come and overthrow the Romans uh, with military might. Instead... Uh, they get this man who would lay down his life. Uh, And and so while they understand his claim to be Messiah, that doesn't mean uh, that they really understand what that fully means. Uh, And having arrived, so Jesus makes this statement as he comes in, having arrived, uh, his next step is to show the authority that he carries as the king. Uh, We see it in his interactions at the temple. Uh, So we pick it up in verses 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Uh, And again, Jesus is making a big claim. Uh, Here he walks into the temple with authority. Uh, He doesn't pop a little note in the suggestion box. Hey, guys, how about you move the the money changes? Uh, But he overturns tables. This is a big deal. He drives uh, these people right on out of the temple. Uh, He quotes from Isaiah God's words that his house will be a house of prayer. And he makes those words his own, doesn't he? He claims God's own authority, authority over the temple, God's dwelling place. Uh, It's a big event, a big deal. The leaders of the time uh, had willingly allowed the outer court of the temple. uh, This area you can see on there, uh, that outer court, uh, which was known as the court of the Gentiles. They'd allowed it to be turned into a marketplace. Uh, and, And now, to be clear, it doesn't seem that the trade itself is a problem. There was a necessity... Uh, to change money, to sell animals for sacrifices. Uh, They were acceptable parts of going to the temple. Uh, The problem was that they had brought this trade into the temple itself. Uh, In fact, they brought it into the place that was allocated for the Gentiles to come and to pray and connect with God. Uh, They were interfering with the Gentiles' capacity uh, to, to use the temple for what it was intended. And so Jesus is rightly angry. Uh, now, you may be wondering, uh, as you hear that account, how, how could he get away with it? Surely there was security or something there to stop him. Uh, how can he just march on in and start flipping over tables, driving people out? It doesn't seem to add up. Um, as you think about it, it's good to remember the vibe in the city at the time. So remember, this quarter of a million strong crowd is gathered. There's this buzz about Jesus, the prophet, the, the come Messiah. Uh, 
a pretty sizable proportion of this crowd were behind Jesus. Uh, and so the authorities were far too scared to do anything to stop him. Uh, and so uh, he could come, he could flip tables. Uh, we see that fear in, in the leaders of the Jews. They, they end up arresting him at night, don't they? Because they're afraid of the people. Uh, and so, uh, so far we've seen uh, Jesus make it clear that he's the Messiah as he comes in. We've seen uh, him claim God's own authority uh, as he interacts in the temple. In fact, uh, as we read on that temple account, uh, we actually see more of Jesus' claim. Uh, so from verse 14... Uh, The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read from the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise? And there's a couple of things going on there, uh, are pretty great things when we examine them. Uh, the first one there is we see Jesus heal the blind and the lame. Um, now, to help us understand that, uh, we see Jesus healing people lots throughout the Gospels. Uh, but this is particularly significant. Um, at the time, people who were in that category, blind and lame, were actually excluded from fully... Uh, getting into the temple practice, from, from worshipping fully in the temple. Uh, because of their, their laws around purity and cleanliness, uh, it actually excluded them from properly uh, worshipping in the temple. Uh, and so Jesus healing them there at the temple was effectively uh, giving them access to the temple, giving them access to God's dwelling place. He was restoring their relationship with God. Uh, Jesus shows us here that he is the one who is able to make people approachable, uh, able to approach God. Uh, And it's a big deal. Uh, Then we see as they praise him, uh, note he puts himself in the position of Lord, the one receiving the praise from the lips of infants and children. Again, these aren't cryptic clues. Uh, This is not Jesus beating around the bush, uh, sending us little ciphers. Uh, This is Jesus making bold claims about who he is about his role as Messiah and the godly authority that comes with it. That we can come to God through Jesus and Jesus alone. Uh, These are big claims. Uh, If you were at life on Friday, uh, you would have heard that these are not the kind of statements that a man who was simply a good man would make. That's one of the things that we talked about. If you claim that status, uh, that authority, uh, to have God's own authority... If you claim that and you don't really have it, well, you're not a good person. You're maybe crazy, if we're generous, or evil. Uh, A good man doesn't claim to have those things when they're not, when they don't. Uh, But if you claim those things and they're true, that's a big deal, isn't it? Uh, That's a big enough deal that, that it would shape your life, that we would live our lives according to this man. Jesus makes big statements, statements that demand a response. Uh, And so that leads us to our second point, uh, how people respond to him. Uh, We get a whole lot of different responses as we work through, don't we? Uh, We've already seen a bunch. Uh, We see the crowd already hailing him as king. Um, But we also know that for many of them, that's a surface level thing. Uh, They're the ones who, who shift dramatically when Jesus is arrested. 
Uh, we also see that wonderful response from the kids in the temple uh, that reminds us of, of what we saw just a couple of weeks ago, that the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these, these kids. Uh, they're open, willing, following of Jesus. Uh, and of course we see the response of the priests, the teachers of the law, the Pharisees, uh, in short, the leaders of Israel. They are indignant, angry that he would claim to be Messiah. Uh, it's these leaders' response that, that we're particularly going to focus on. That's what Jesus does through, through much of the rest of the chapter. Uh, and so we're going to see uh, how he responds to them. Uh, and we see that the catalyst to his response is when they come to question his authority. Uh, so starting at verse 23, let's read it together. Jesus entered the temple courts uh, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or, from, or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they, hold, they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We don't know. Then he said, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Uh, now it's good to notice from the start, they're asking the right question. This is a good question to ask. By what authority are you doing these things? Uh, see, we've seen Jesus make uh, an outrageous claim, a big claim. And so rightly, they want to know where his authority comes from. It's the right question, a question all of us should ask uh, before we commit to following Jesus. But the problem is that they are not in the least bit interested in finding out the answer. And so rather than directly answering their question, Jesus makes it clear that that's what they're on about, that they're not really after the answer at all. See, they know that John the Baptist is by and large considered to be a genuine prophet. Uh, that's where the evidence points, that's what we think. Uh, but they also know that John pointed to Jesus as being the Messiah. Uh, and so they're stuck. Uh, we see their thought process. They say, if, if we say that John isn't a prophet, uh, the people will be against us and they're afraid. But if we say he is, well, well then by necessity we have to say, we have to believe what he says about Jesus. Uh, and so they're stuck. Uh, in pointing them in that direction, Jesus shows them the answer. It's pretty clear. It's easy enough to connect the dots. John the Baptist, who was from God, says Jesus is from God. The answer to their question, Jesus' authority comes from God. Simple. Uh, but Jesus' trap reveals the Jewish leader's true motivation. Uh, they're not interested in the answer. They're not interested in the truth. Uh, they're interested in protecting their position. That's really what it boils down to, isn't it? They're more interested in protecting their position as leaders of the people than finding out if Jesus really is who he claims, the Messiah. Now, what I find really interesting here is that uh, these Jewish leaders in their response aren't actually so far away from the rich young ruler who we saw uh, only a couple of weeks ago. Uh, take a moment to compare them. Look on the surface. Both of them looked the goods, didn't they? Uh, they were 
Both lots of people were upstanding moral members of society. Uh, They seemed to be successful. Uh, They both seemed to be earnestly chasing after God. That was the perception you would have had looking from the outside. But they both come unstuck, don't they? For the rich young ruler, uh, he cannot bring himself to compromise on his money. Uh, And so Jesus comes second. For the Jewish leaders, it's their power, isn't it? They're so wrapped up in maintaining their position that they've ceased listening to God. And I think uh, most things that pull us away from God work that same way, don't they? Uh, It's when we won't let God have control of some aspect of our lives. Uh, For the rich man, like we saw money, the Jewish leader's position, the warning is obvious. We need to be wary of things that will tempt us to switch off from listening to God. Jesus' parables even point out that these Jewish leaders started off with the right intention. The first of his two parables describes two sons. The father asks each of them to go work in the field. The first says no, but then relinquishes and goes. The second says yes, but ultimately doesn't go. See, despite their initial response, there was only one son who actually obeyed the father. Uh, The Jewish leaders are are that second son, the one who started on the right track, said, yes, I'll go, but then veered off course. Even after they'd seen the example of the other brother uh, who obeyed. Uh, It shows us that that while they might have looked like they were listening to begin with, the finish line was different. They didn't obey God in the end. Uh, And the second parable shows us just how far off course they had gone. Uh, In the second, it's a landowner and his tenants, tenants who attack uh, and even kill the landowner's servants uh, when he sends them to collect his share of the harvest. And ultimately, they kill the landowner's son. Uh, A really foolish move when you think about it in an attempt to take the property for themselves. It was never going to work, was it? Uh, But that's their intention. And we see it's a tragic path. And it's chilling to see the Jewish leaders describe the punishment uh, that they think the bad guys therefore deserve. Uh, These leaders uh, describing the punishment that that they'll earn for themselves uh, over this next week uh, as they take out their role in killing God's own son. Uh, Listen to what they say about it. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. So the Jewish leader's response to Jesus' claim authority is a really clear rejection. Uh, And that rejection will result in them being removed from God's kingdom uh, and replaced by others. Uh, And though we've seen a whole bunch of initial responses to Jesus, as, as we break it down... Uh, we see ultimately that the passage only really leaves us with two possible outcomes. The response of the two sons in the first parable, to obey or to not obey. Um, Have a look at verses 31 and 32. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first they answered. Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. John the Baptist came 
and showed the way of righteousness, the way to be saved. Uh, And that way was Jesus. The simple way to describe the right response is to repent and believe. Uh, And the really fantastic thing that we see in this passage is that that path is a path that is open to absolutely anyone. Look at the two examples Jesus uses, tax collectors and prostitutes. Um, It'd be hard to imagine two groups of people less looked down upon in Jesus' time. Uh, These are two groups of people uh, who would have been considered by just about everyone as being spiritually hopeless. But it's people from these two groups, Jesus says, are entering the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you've ever doubted your savability, I don't think that's a real word, but if you've ever doubted whether Jesus would really save someone like you, someone who's done the things that you've done, it's clear that you should worry no more. Like the son in the parable, it does not matter how you start. The question that matters, the only question that matters, is how will you respond to Jesus? Like we saw, there's only two ways that you can really go. Repent and believe or miss out. Uh, And so knowing that, it's good to come to our third point, which is to flesh out where those two responses lead us. Uh, Let's start with the negative. Have a look at the very end of the passage, starting from verse 42. Reads, Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. In the end, we see that it all hinges on Jesus. He is exactly who he claims to be. The Messiah, the promised king sent to save God's people. And the image we get is that he's the cornerstone. Uh, We sang that song before, didn't we? Christ alone, cornerstone. The, The cornerstone is the stone that the rest of the building is lined up against. Uh, It's the stone that starts it. When you get that cornerstone right uh, and the rest of the stones follow, everything else will fall into place. Uh, But if you get it wrong, uh, then the building will be wonky. Uh, It won't be straight, it won't be strong, and ultimately it'll fall. And that's what these verses show us. If you stumble on Jesus, the cornerstone, you will fall to pieces. Or worse, you'll be crushed. Uh, There's no beating around the bush in that language, is there? Uh, This is not something that sounds particularly politically correct. Uh, This is not the public statement that we long to make. Uh, But in the end, it's a reality, isn't it? If we reject Jesus, if we reject our creator and the salvation he offers then it shouldn't be surprising that we'll get the opposite, that we'll miss salvation. This is a reality that we need to contend with uh, and to face up to. And it should stir us to action, shouldn't it? Both in our own responses uh, and in our desire to see others learn that saving truth. It's a sad path. When it came to Jesus, the Jewish leaders stumbled. 
They couldn't relinquish control. They couldn't put him in his rightful place. We saw Jesus' radical teaching last week that anyone who wants to be great must become like a servant. That the first would be last and the last first. But the Jewish leaders just could not let go of first place. Uh, And so they become last. Uh, And they serve as a warning for all of us. But then there's those who choose instead to repent. Those who embrace Jesus as their king and their saviour. Verse 43 says that the kingdom of God will be taken away from the Jewish leaders and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Those people who repent. Um, Now as I say that, I want to make sure I'm really clear on what that word repent really means. Uh, It's a word that uh, is often, I think, misunderstood. Uh, It's often simplified to mean something like to say sorry or, or to be remorseful. Uh, about something you've done. Uh, and that is part of the meaning, but it, but it doesn't stop there. There's more to it. Repentance means to turn around, to change directions. To repent is to turn from the wrong thing that you're doing uh, and to start doing the right thing. Uh, it should be natural, shouldn't it? If I decided that uh, eating unhealthily was the wrong thing for me to do, uh, to repent doesn't just mean to be remorseful about it. Well, it's often the way we go, isn't it? Oh, I ate the worst things. But then we keep eating them. That's not repenting. Uh, repenting means not just to be remorseful about that, that thing, but it means to change. So I would stop eating unhealthy things and start eating healthy things. That's how repentance works. It means changing course, doing, doing that 180 degree turn. The repentance that we see here in the Bible isn't about what we eat, don't worry, Uh, but it's about who I'm living for. This repentance means turning away from living for myself and turning toward living for Jesus. Now that, of course, will mean changing lots of our behaviours. It will shape uh, the things that we do. Uh, We'll move in line with living the Jesus way of life. Uh, But at, at its core... It's about shifting your direction toward living for Jesus, the promised king. And the passage tells us that the result of that will be that we will bear fruit. It goes hand in hand with being a follower of Jesus. Uh, So we've got one more section that we're going to look at. uh, And it's perhaps the most enigmatic part of today's passage. It's where Jesus encounters this fig tree. Uh, We'll pick it up from verse 18. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Uh, Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. Uh, When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, Not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. And now this section uh, throws us off. Uh, We kind of, I don't know about you, kind of think, wow, that's poor fig tree. Just just didn't have any fruit. Seems a bit harsh. Uh, But it's an an enacted parable. This is a a real life parable. Jesus is showing us 
uh, something. He's teaching us a truth. Uh, and what he's teaching us, again, is that ultimately there's only two responses to Jesus. To repent and to follow him. Uh, and that means bearing fruit. Or, like the Jewish leaders, to stumble. To reject Jesus and to bear the consequences. Uh, and we see there's no escaping that reality. Uh, that if you're living for Jesus, then you will be someone who bears fruit. And if you're not bearing fruit, then you're not living for Jesus. But what does it mean to bear fruit? Uh, it's an idea that we see across the Bible a number of times. Uh, in Galatians, we read the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, we read it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. Very hard not to sing that as a former kids minister. Uh, we also get the image of mission being like harvesting crops. Uh, and so fruit uh, can be the fruit of those who turn. Uh, both are examples of bearing fruit. But really, to bear fruit means to live a life faithful uh, to Jesus, where our efforts are, gore, are geared towards living for him. Uh, and that living for Jesus will produce an outward effect in our lives. Uh, bearing fruit means living faithfully and tangibly for Jesus. Uh, and the encouragement in those verses is that when we do that, we'll be acting in Jesus' authority. That's what that cryptic second half of the parable is about. Uh, when Jesus makes the fig tree wither, it's interesting, isn't it? The disciples don't ask, why did you do that? Or what they ask is, how did you do that? And it fits with the theme of the section. Uh, by what authority do you do these things? Uh, in fact, the withering fig tree comes right after Jesus' actions in the temple, where he judges the den of robbers who weren't bearing fruit. So it fits together. Uh, and Jesus' answer shows them that those who live in faith will be acting under that same authority, under God's authority. And so anything will be possible. Now, uh, I think this is often a, a misunderstood passage. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, should I be out in the Wadigans trying to move them around, try and get a bit of a different order about those mountains? Uh, the point here is that Jesus' strength comes for those with faith who do not doubt. Um, that doubt word there uh, means that they have no doubt they can have doesn't mean they can have no doubt that they can have whatever they want. I think that's sometimes what we think. Oh, well, I really wanted that and I didn't doubt it would come to me. Rather, it means that they do not doubt in God's plan. They are completely committed to achieving God's purpose. Uh, that's what it's about. Uh, now, that may sound like a little bit of a cop-out uh, because you and I know that if I go out there to move a mountain, it won't be for God's sake, will it? Uh, it will be for mine. Uh, and so that's not what this passage is about. This is not doubting my purpose. It, it's, uh, it's about not doubting God's purpose. Uh, but it should spur us on to chase after Jesus without holding back. It should remind us that it's in his incredible strength that we'll be acting. Uh, and so anything will be possible as we seek to work out his plans and purposes. Uh, even moving a mountain if that's what his plan and purpose is. Uh, and so there we have it, two paths, two responses to Jesus' proclamation that he's the Messiah. 
And so what do we do with it? Uh, What should our steps be now that we know that? Uh, And I want to wrap up, uh, we're coming to the end, but I want to wrap up with three things that have encouraged me through this chapter. Uh, Three things that will help us as we tread this path of repentance. Uh, And hopefully they'll encourage you too. These are the three things. Uh, One, I want to encourage you to commit to the change. I want to encourage you too to remember it's about how you finish. And I want to encourage you to get on with bearing fruit. Um, Now that first one there is commit to the change. And what I mean by that is to remember that this is about Repentance. It's about changing the direction of your life. And it's not something that you can half do. You can't half change the direction of your life. You either do or you don't. Um, When I worked for Crusaders, uh, one of my roles, one of the things that I spent a good amount of time doing was teaching people to sail. Uh, One of the things about sailing is that it's a sport where it's important to be decisive. I don't know if you've ever sailed before, but it's true. If you're going to change directions, you can't half do it. You either do or you don't. Uh, And that was something that the nervous new leaders trying to learn to sail often struggled with. They they get a change, they they weren't quite sure, uh, and so they'd sort of half turn. uh, Hovering in indecision, not sure whether they should go or not. And the thing is that when you do that, you end up kind of flapping around in the wind, the boom swinging around, knocking you in the head. Uh, It's not a place that you can be with a boat. It just doesn't work. You're either this way or you're that way. Uh, There's no in-between. And I want to say that it's the same thing when it comes to following Jesus. Uh, It's not something that can work if you do it half-heartedly. It's a change that we need to go all in on. Uh, That was the rich man's problem. He couldn't go all in. He couldn't commit to the change. Uh, And so his commitment to Jesus fell apart. Um, Now, that's not to say that we'll never have any doubts. Uh, We won't have things to work on. Uh, But if we choose Jesus, there's no point in doing it half-heartedly. It's an all-or-nothing kind of deal. And so I want to encourage you to go all in, uh, to be all in on following Jesus with all that comes with it. The second thing there uh, was to remember uh, that it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Um, now, this isn't me encouraging you, I just, oh, we'll wait till you're on your deathbed and then repent. Um, but it's me encouraging you not to get stuck on where you've come from. If you've made mistakes in the past, that's okay. Jesus welcomes all of us with open arms regardless of what mistakes we might have made in our past. Uh, We are free to let go of past mistakes, to know that we are forgiven fully and completely, uh, and so we can focus on where we're now heading. You can't change where you've been, but you do have a say in where you're headed next. So make sure that those next steps are steps towards Jesus. Focus on that end. I think this also helps us to think about how we treat others. Uh, We need to treat others with that same openness and and that same sense of forgiveness as Jesus does. Uh, If a tax collector or a prostitute, to use Jesus as examples, walked into church today, how would we treat them? We should accept them openly and willingly as Jesus does. Uh, And I think we're often tempted not to do that, uh, to create our own little hierarchy of importance. Uh, But Jesus doesn't 
uh, try uh, treat people like that. Uh, and so neither should we. Everyone has the same opportunity to respond to Jesus. Uh, and so we, as his people, should hold out that hope, that opportunity uh, to respond to him, to follow him. Uh, and not to just think of those we think will be most willing or most suitable or most worthy. But we want to hold that out to everyone. We want everyone to have that chance to respond. The third one I've got uh, is to get on with bearing fruit. Uh, I want to encourage us. This good, isn't it? Uh, I want to encourage us to get on with bearing fruit. See, at the end, we know the truth, don't we? We know exactly who Jesus is. We know how we should respond. The trick is doing it, isn't it? Get on with it. Live faithfully for him. Uh, Live faithfully and tangibly. Is your fruit obvious? If someone looks at your life, is it clear that you're living for Jesus? Are you bearing fruit? I want to encourage us to be people who bear fruit as we live for Jesus. I'm going to pray that that would be so. Lord, I want to thank you for this passage. Uh, I thank you for this bold statement of who Jesus is, uh, that he is the promised king, the saviour of the world. Uh, Lord, we know this truth. And so, Lord, we pray that we would respond accordingly, that we wouldn't be half-hearted, that we wouldn't be caught in our past mistakes, uh, but that we would live wholly and faithfully for Jesus that we would walk that path, living for him. Uh, Lord, we pray as we do that you would bring fruit, uh, that you would change us, that you would make us more like Jesus, that you would bring more people into your kingdom through us. Lord, help us to live for him in all that we do. And we pray that in Jesus' great name. Amen.